You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine aloud. On today's episode, Fraser Nelson reads The Leader. Britain's immigration system is a mess. Why not have an amnesty for migrants without legal status and allow asylum seekers to get jobs while their applications are processed? Michaela Wrong is on after. The Rwandan president Paul Kagame was once the darling of the West, but are our leaders now acknowledging the grim abuses of his regime? And finally, Mark Mason explains the beauty of bar service. First up, Fraser Nelson. Many feared mass unemployment as a fallout from COVID-19. Instead, we've ended up with the opposite problem, a labour shortage. The lack of lorry drivers has led to some items missing from supermarkets, pubs, restaurants, and many other businesses are struggling to reopen as completely as they would like for want of adequate staff. As Matthew Lynn says in this week's cover story, the great shortage of workers has already had quite a positive effect on wages. So we're looking at a situation where there's a rare opportunity for a long overdue reform in other places, particularly when it comes to processing asylum seekers. For years, there was quite a bit of public concern that there were far more immigrants coming to work in Britain than ministers ever expected. Immigration, in short, was a big problem and perceived to be by most voters. Politicians from all parties prefer to dismiss the concerns as nostalgia or xenophobia rather than address the rational fears of workers that salaries were being forced down or that public services were being squeezed. This was a fateful misdiagnosis. Any economic model based on the assumption of an endless supply of cheap labour was going to store up problems, problems that came to a head during the 2016 referendum on Brexit. It was never part of the official Brexit campaign in which Boris Johnson played a prime role to close down immigration, only that it be brought under control. Britain is one of the world's most welcoming countries for migrants, but voters also want the system to be fair. Now we've left the EU, there are checks and controls on the borders, public concern about immigration has fallen significantly. This allows us for more leniency at home, especially for those who are already here. Let's take, for example, the fairly large population of asylum applicants who are fully and needlessly dependent on the taxpayer. At the end of June, there were almost 60,000 outstanding asylum applications, a number that's almost trebled over the last three years. And of these, 42,000 have been waiting for at least six months for their claim to be heard. There is absolutely no excuse for leaving so many people in limbo for so long. And it gets worse. At the moment, if any of these asylum applicants try to cover their own costs, to try to find work, to support their own families, they can be, and they often are, raided by the police and sent back to their life of state-mandated unemployment. This is a tragic waste of taxpayers' money to say nothing of the waste of human potential. Those motivated enough to cross the world, to start a new life in Britain, to start at the very bottom, are being stopped from working at a time when the contribution to the economy is sorely needed. The ban on asylum seekers finding employment is supposed to deter economic migrants, that's the rationale, but there's no real evidence that it does. 
a far better guard against economic migration would be to speed up the process for asylum application with speedier, high-profile deportations for those who fail to meet the criteria. So you can have a system, again, based on fairness. The message to asylum seekers should be simple. If they have no genuine case to come and stay in Britain, their claim will fail and the fees they pay to the people smugglers will have been wasted. But for those whose case is strong, such as the many Afghans to whom we've promised sanctuary, they should be processed quickly and they should be able to work from as soon as their application starts to be processed. Britain is now once again in control of the immigration system, yet that immigration system is a mess. Officials have struggled, in some instances, to rumble legal workers in their own offices at the Home Office, yet the system will still turn upon somebody who's lived in Britain for decades, who's somebody who supported themselves and raised a family, but whose papers are not quite in order and are therefore categorised as illegal migrants. The Windrush scandal, along with that disgraceful phrase, hostile environment, shamed Britain. And now the country is left looking foolish as a result of the border agency's de facto cross-channel taxi service for illegal migrants. Now the Windrush scandal could have been avoided if the government had followed a policy which The Spectator has advocated for the past two decades. An amnesty for migrants who might not have formal status, but who have been living here peacefully for many years. When there's such a backlog for officials to work through, why waste time on historic cases which go back decades? It's simply ridiculous that officials pursue migrants who've been in the country for so long that they have adult children. It's ridiculous they should be earmarked for expulsion, and it's ridiculous that we shouldn't talk frankly about the estimated one million undocumented migrants who live in Britain. They are our countrymen. We might not know what to do about them, but it's better to have that discussion than to pretend they're not here. Boris Johnson himself was once a keen advocate of such a policy. He supported it when he was doing my job, when he was editor of this magazine. He supported it when he was Mayor of London, he supported it when he was Foreign Secretary, and recently when he stood for Tory leader. So why haven't we heard more about a migrant amnesty since he became Prime Minister? Perhaps he sensed that it wouldn't go down as well in the hustings as some of his other policies. But that shouldn't deter him. He's in the mood now for taking difficult decisions. Look at last week's tax rise. And there might never be a better chance to reset the immigration system. There's a huge demand for workers right now. There's a collapse in migration numbers. And, thanks to Brexit, a new points-based system ensuring fairness for those who come in. So now, it's beyond time to give fairness to those who are already here. It's time to let asylum seekers work as a claim is processed, and it's time to come up with a formal system of earned asylum for those who've lived amongst us peacefully and constructively for many, many years. That was Fraser Nelson. Next, Michaela Rong. I doubt that Paul Kagame would have me assassinated, but it became clear to me late on Sunday afternoon that, at the very least, I am in his sights. As president of Rwanda... Kagame became the toast of the international aid community and collected billions of dollars in aid. But is this money well spent? My book, Do Not Disturb, takes a closer look at how Kagame operates. He doesn't appreciate the attention. My book kicks off with a strangling of Patrick Karagaya, Kagame's spy chief, in a Johannesburg hotel in late 2013, almost certainly on the president's orders. It then explores the campaign of harassment, intimidation and murder that Rwanda has waged against dissidents scattered from Africa to Europe and Scandinavia to North America. 
It's fairly long on evidence, which is perhaps why Kagame has gone to the surprising lengths of denouncing me on Rwandan state TV. A friend in Nairobi called while I was at the recycling centre to tell me. Back at home, I tuned in, and my jaw dropped. Kagame's interviews tend to be long and meandering. No one dares interrupt, after all. This interview with the de facto leader of Rwanda since its 1994 genocide, and a president more feared than loved, went on for nearly three hours. But the bit about me came early on. He was asked how he responded to criticism voiced abroad. In particular, a book by a certain British author. Oh, he said airily, we know those who sponsored her to do it. This was a reference to Uganda, whose president was once Kagame's boss, but is now a loathed regional rival. Kagame cited players in neighbouring countries, along with some far away north. It seemed I had written my book at the behest of not one, but several hostile governments. The account I'd given was too personalised, Kagame went on. I've been very close personal friends with the book's protagonist, Rwanda's assassinated head of external intelligence. Given the choice between the person she loved and Rwanda, I had taken the person's side. So not only a foreign agent, but sexually compromised to boot. Ever since the publication of Do Not Disturb, Rwanda's state-controlled social media have been portraying me as a cross between Matahari and Lady Macbeth. I've been denounced as a racist, a genocide denier, and a former French army spokeswoman, bizarrely. Heartbroken by my ex-lover's murder, they say, I teamed up with Karagaya's widow to wreak revenge. Ugandan intelligence paid me $300,000 to write my book. Not only was I Karagaya's lover, I'm the current paramour of Yoweri Museveni, the Ugandan president. Since the book was published in April, the tweets have poured in relentlessly from troll accounts many operated by Rwanda's intelligence service, police force and presidential office. But while I've never doubted who was behind the smears, I never expected the head of state himself to voice this misogynistic, paranoid nonsense on live TV. I told you, chortled Robert Hijiro, a former Rwandan army officer turned anti-government campaigner, your book has really got to him. For the record, I was never intimate with Karagaya and the only people who paid me to write Do Not Disturb were my publishers. But why would Kagame stoop so low? The answer, I suspect, lies in the exasperation, tinged with panic, and built on a bedrock of solid narcissism that Kagame feels whenever his movement's iron control over the Rwandan narrative threatens to slip out of his grasp. One of the distinguishing features of the Rwandan Patriotic Front Fighters who seized control of Rwanda in July 1994, after a genocide committed by Hutu President Juvenal Habyarimana's soldiers and militiamen, was their persuasiveness. Ironically, Patrick Karagaya was one of their most effective spin doctors, their version of Alistair Campbell, until the day he stopped believing his own pitch. Appalled by a vast bloodletting, which the international community had done nothing to stop, Guilt-ridden Western diplomats, aid workers and journalists largely accepted Karagaya's version of events in what had, until then, been a little-known country at the heart of Central Africa. The RPF's brave warriors, many of them offspring of minority Tutsis expelled from Rwanda in the 1960s, had invaded a toxic dictatorship, so the story ran, ending the slaughter of innocent civilians, inheriting a country devastated by ethnic hatred, 
they had done away with Hutu Tutsi classification and rebuilt on the rubble to become an inspirational model of a progressive, development-oriented African state. In the years that followed, Kagame was hailed as a visionary by the likes of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, was befriended by Claire Short and Andrew Mitchell, who generously supported him with British aid and more, made regular appearances in Davos and sent competent, energised officials to galvanise the African Development Bank and African Union. It's taken 27 years, but that account simply doesn't enjoy the traction it once did. Books like those of the former refugees Marie Beatrice Umutesi and Prospera Ishimwe and the Canadian journalist Judy Reaver, an extreme account which nonetheless raises massively disquieting questions about the RPF's record, have rolled off the presses, exposing the atrocities committed by the RPF as it advanced across Rwanda, crimes which fuelled the xenophobia that made the genocide possible. There's an 11-year-old UN mapping report into killings conducted in the Democratic Republic of Congo, accusing Kagame's troops of slaughtering tens of thousands of Hutus on their soil. But it has never been followed up. As for being a model African state... That's debatable. Kagame supposedly won 99% of the vote in the last presidential election, and the domestic press has been cowed into sycophancy. Few outsiders take Rwanda's democratic credentials seriously, and a growing number of economists are starting to query whether Rwanda's scores on a range of development indices are as miraculous as claimed. Human rights groups keep a damning tally, of operations targeting Rwandan dissidents, activists and journalists abroad. One of the most high-profile of Kagame's critics, Paul Rusesa Bagina, of Hollywood's Hotel Rwanda fame, is due to be sentenced in Kigali on Monday on terrorism charges. His abduction from Dubai last year was hailed by Rwandan officials as a major coup. But with US senators and congressmen denouncing his trial as a farce, the episode may have cost Kagame more reputationally than he ever anticipated. In Rwanda, the arbitrary arrests and disappearances continue. Recently, it was the turn of Christopher Kayumba, a former university lecturer and newspaper founder who dared set up an opposition party earlier this year. He has just been accused of rape. Now on hunger strike, he had predicted his own arrests, such as the political climate in Kigali. If you Tutsi and the RPF is out to get you, you'll be called corrupt, a sexual molester. If you're Hutu, you'll be accused of taking part in the genocide, or if you're too young to have done that, of genocide ideology, says Ali Abdul Karim, a senior member of Karagai's Rwanda National Congress Party. And if you're white, you'll be accused of racism. The drip, drip, drip of grim news has had an inevitable impact on how outsiders view Rwanda, and no leader is more aware of the risk that poses for an aid-dependent state than Kagame. As a young, would-be rebel sent to train in Dar es Salaam, Kagame learned the dark arts of intelligence gathering and disinformation from Tanzanian military intelligence. Before the phrase fake news had even been invented, he'd understood the importance of winning the information war. No African government puts more effort into monitoring what is said about it. Kagame may deny it, but there is convincing evidence that Rwanda was an enthusiastic client of NSO, the Israeli company selling Pegasus spyware that allowed it to eavesdrop on the conversations of 3,500 African politicians and military staff 
along with journalists and activists in the diaspora. And no African government works harder to control the message that goes out. Despite being one of the poorest countries in the world, Rwanda has paid eye-watering amounts to public relations firms in the US and UK. This became embarrassingly obvious when Justice Minister Johnston, Businge, was exposed on Al Jazeera being coached by Chelgate, a London firm specialising in reputation management. Businge is due to become the next Rwandan High Commissioner in the UK. Hypersensitive to Western perceptions, Kagame has certainly sensed a recent palling of enthusiasm in the UK and US, key sources of funding since the genocide. Despite Joe Biden's promise to reach out to a continent his predecessor ignored, Kagame was not one of the African leaders the US president chose to call after his win, nor was he among the five African presidents invited to a leaders' climate summit earlier this year. As for Boris Johnson, his restructured foreign office has shown no intention of making Rwanda an exception to a planned across-the-board slashing of foreign aid. Tellingly, Kagame's television comments about Do Not Disturb cited supposed sponsors for my critique far away north, presumably either the US or UK. And the interview was remarkable for its repeated expressions of aggrieved resentment towards an international community and Western media determined in the president's view to humiliate Rwanda. This summer may well have handed Rwanda a reprieve, however, allowing Kagame's government to demonstrate just how well it can perform in an established area of expertise, the dispatch of disciplined, effective troops to African hotspots. At the request of Philippe Nussi, the president of Mozambique, Kigali in July sent a thousand troops to the northern province of Cabo Delgado, where an Islamic insurgency had closed down operations at a massive natural gas concession owned by France's Total and the US's ExxonMobil. The rebels promptly scattered into the bush. The Rwandan Twitter army, as it is locally dubbed, railed bitterly at how little coverage the military operation got in the West, detecting yet another example of racism at work. But it certainly won Kagame brownie points in the two capitals he suspects may be falling out of love with his regime. The Mozambique deployment was timely in that it reminded Western governments of Kagame's usefulness, said one European diplomat I spoke to. In France, the UK, Western states and organisations like the EU and Commonwealth, it was seen as very positive. Given the context of general indifference towards Africa, it may have tipped perceptions back in Rwanda's favour. For the large Hutu community in Mozambique, however, the Rwandan deployment is bad news. Two of the Rwandan diplomats now serving at the High Commission were expelled from South Africa in 2014 because of their suspected role in a series of violent attacks against the exiled opposition, including Karagaya's murder. Even before Rwanda's troops were deployed in Cabo Delgado, there were signs Kigali was up to its usual tricks. In May, a Rwandan radio journalist, Cassian Ntamuhanga, who had moved to Mozambique after escaping from a Rwandan prison, was arrested and, according to local news outlets, handed over to the Rwandan High Commission. He's not been seen since. Last month, two more Rwandans, including the Secretary of the Association of Rwandan Refugees, were taken away by Mozambique police, but freed after protests from the association. Just before this article went to press, prominent Hutu businessman Revokat Karamanjingo 
a former lieutenant in Habyarimana's army, was gunned down outside his house in a suburb of the Mozambican capital, Maputo. The men who shot him were travelling in a three-car convoy, a deployment so high-profile it's certain to raise questions about official complicity. This, Rwandan dissidents will tell you, is how Kagame operates. He uses his network of embassies and friendships with foreign governments to pursue perceived enemies across the world, bartering his troops' security potential for their compliance on the human rights front. But he can't control the narrative forever, and as he knows, the truth is slowly beginning to come out. That was Michaela Rong, and finally, Mark Mason. Life's great joys are usually its little ones, and one of the greatest is ordering at the bar in a pub. The custom, as opposed to sitting at a table and being served by a waiter, was one of the things I missed most during lockdown. The period when pubs reopened but could only provide table service was miserable. A bar is more than just a place where drinks are dispensed. It's a pub's heart, the region where its name, short of course for public house, gets its meaning. You never know who you're going to meet there. This is why pubs are always more exciting than members clubs. It's also why London became the financial capital of Europe. Peter Rees, ex-chief planning officer of the Square Mile, says that the fact that you stand up to drink in an English pub quote, means you can be closer to people you don't know than if you're sitting at a table. The gossip you get in a French cafe is the gossip of your groups. The gossip you get in a London pub is the gossip of other people's groups, if you're careful and clever. That's very valuable because you can take it back to the office and put two and two together and make some money. This element of bringing disparate people together is illustrated in the countless TV shows that have used the bar as a plot device, from Bette Lynch and her drinkers in The Rover's Return to Barbara Windsor serving Boris Johnson in The Queen Vic. No soap opera has ever succeeded without its pub. In The Sweeney, John Thor seemed to take most of his phone calls in one London boozer or another, the landlord placing the phone on the bar so Regan could pick up the receiver. In the days before mobiles, this was common practice. A couple of years ago, in a rural pub with no reception, I had to take a call on the venue's landline. The barman handing over the phone was a genuinely nostalgic moment. The bar's pivotal role in British culture is there in the movies too. The first two minutes of Nil by Mouth are Ray Winston ordering a round. Menace in every syllable. Ain't you got no ice? In Get Carter... Michael Caine's gangster shows how little he's intimidated by being away from his London manor by clicking his fingers at the Newcastle barman who's about to serve him a pint of bitter. In a thin glass. One of the real delights of bar service is that it lets you savour your choice of drink. Perusing a list of names on a piece of paper just isn't the same as surveying the logos on the beer pumps, the beautifully designed labels on the spirit bottles, whose coloured glass is backlit to maximum effect. Seeing your drink poured and then placed in front of you ratchets up your anticipation of that first mouthful no end. When a bar's busy, you might have to work hard to get served. The test of a truly great pub is that its staff always know which customer is next. In inferior establishments, you need bar presence. Jasper Carrot once had a routine about his complete lack of this quality, which meant he could be standing there yelling, waving every banknote and credit card in his possession at the barman and still not get noticed. An old trick is to respond to the server's who's next by pointing at the person next to you. This display of generosity ensures you'll be served after them, even though you might in fact have been fifth in the queue. Another aspect of the packed bar is that there will usually be regulars stubbornly standing there to drink their pints, getting in the way of everyone else who's still waiting. 
This might seem an act of selfishness, but it's actually the inverse of Michael Caine in Get Carter. It's the home drinker proclaiming, this is my patch, rather than the away one implying, you want some. But these are small details. Overall, the beauty of bar service is that it brings people together. Friends who haven't met for a while. People who've never met before and indeed may never meet again, but who, for an hour or two, will delight in each other's company. This is a thing missed by those who ask why anyone would pay pub prices when you can get your booze so much cheaper in Tesco. Going to the pub isn't simply, or even primarily, about drinking alcohol. The same mistake was made by those who worship most devoutly at the altar of Covid restrictions. What are you moaning about? they asked in the table service period. Why do you need to get served at the bar? You can still have the drink you want sitting down, can't you? Yes, you can. But you can't meet anyone you don't already know. There are plenty of us who don't think, or indeed drink, that way. And to them I say, see you at the bar. That was Mark Mason, and that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? Mary Wakefield writes about ditching the word dream. Matthew Lynn says Britain's labour shortage could be a good thing. And Jack Rivlin explains why digital art sells for millions. Thanks again for listening, and join us again next week. <laughs>